You're listening to the Opportunity Zones and Private Equity Show. Listen in for news and insights on how Opportunity Zones, private equity funds, and private real estate can help you grow your wealth. Now, here's your host, Jimmy Atkinson. All right. Well, I'm really excited to dive into our first panel this morning at OZ Pitch Day Spring 2023. We have an incredible group of industry-leading panelists with us this morning. And the panel is titled Catalyzing Social Impact with Opportunity Zones. Joining me on the panel this morning are Chris Cooley, CEO of Osworks Group, Catherine Lyons, Director of Public Policy and Coalitions at the Economic Innovation Group, and Rachel Riley, founder of Aces and Archers. Good morning to you all. I I wanted to start with uh, Catherine, actually. Um, EIG released a new analysis just yesterday, um, very timely for us. And the new analysis examines two of the most substantial multi-year studies on Opportunity Zones to date that find that Opportunity Zones are significant and far-reaching. Catherine, can you discuss some of the findings of the EIG report? And also, maybe you can zoom out a little bit and, and tell our group who EIG is and how they fit into the OZ universe, please. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so to start with that, that kind of last question first. Uh, so the Economic Innovation Group is a bipartisan research and public policy organization uh, based in Washington, D.C. Um, our mission is to uh, create a more dynamic and inclusive economy. Um, and one of the very first kind of policy ideas that we came out with as an organization um, almost eight years ago uh, was opportunity zones. Um, we recognized that there was um, a bit of a gap in sort of the existing community community and economic development incentive framework um, and thought that uh, there could be a policy created to help catalyze uh, investment and capital from off of the sidelines um, and quite frankly, off of the coast in many cases um, and into places that have been kind of left behind, especially uh, in the wake of the Great Recession. Um, And so that is what kind of drove our uh, policy design um, and thinking about this uh, and working with uh, Senators Scott and Booker um, and uh, Representative, or sorry, Senators Scott and Booker um, and Representatives uh, Kind and Kelly in the House uh, to create bipartisan legislation um, that would do just that. Uh, and so the that's that's you know our uh, genesis of um, how we became involved with Opportunity Zones and our role as an organization. Obviously, since the uh, policy's passage, we've been really involved in tracking implementation um, on the regulatory process um, and. Uh, you know, adding our thoughts and thoughts of our coalition um, on, you know, the regulatory framework and ensuring that it is aligned with Congress's intent uh, for the policy. Um, So maybe I'll just start there quickly, because I think it might be helpful um, to sort of just level set on what is Congress's and what was Congress's intent for the policy, um, since we're talking here about impact. Um, And then I think that'd be, yeah, I think that'd be, sorry to interrupt, I think that'd be a great place to start. Yeah just the intent of Congress and what we mean when we say impact. And then I think we're going to, the the conversation today will kind of evolve into a discussion of, well, are OZs living up to this congressional intent? What are some examples of social impact? Where is 
the intent of the program being fulfilled. But uh, Catherine, sorry to cut you off there. Uh, continue. No, no, thank you. Um, yeah, so I'll start there and then uh, and then briefly go into kind of the, the what we're seeing uh, based on this latest available data that just came out as well. Um, so essentially, the you know the policy and Congress's intent for it was very much to do exactly what I just said earlier to get uh, capital into communities that have been left behind, um, underserved um, across kind of a variety of ways, um, and uh, and are often overlooked by kind of typical investors. Um, and so the, you know, the statute, while it doesn't have very kind of prescribed uh, use cases for the opportunity zones incentive, uh, such as, you know, the low income housing tax credit or new markets does um, in certain ways, uh, it, it is very much designed to be flexible. That was part of the whole principle behind the policy. Um, a recognition that out of 8,700 communities that were ultimately designated as OZs, there's a lot of diversity there. Um, you know, you get very rural places, highly urban places, um, and everything in between, uh, and they're going to have very different needs. Some will need market rate housing, some will need deeply affordable housing, some will need investment into commercial spaces, and others will need you know, investment into businesses. Um, and there will be offered various opportunities within each of these places as well. And so this was really designed to be a, a policy that could fit for all of those use cases. And that is ultimately what we are seeing. Um, so I think it's important uh, just to, to kind of level set with that and also to share that, you know, there are several requirements, you know, of funds and investors to ensure that economic activity is taking place, meaningful economic activity is taking place in these in these places and quickly, you know, that that there's not this is not a place to just kind of park your money and get a tax, you know, a, a tax incentive here. You really do need to be making a tangible in investment into these communities and a long-term one at that. Um, so with that, I'll just pivot briefly into uh, the latest analysis that we came out with yesterday uh, that takes a look at, at a couple of recent studies from economists at uh, Department of Treasury and associated with UC Berkeley. Uh, so the first kind of the, the headline here is that OZ investment has reached uh, nearly half of the total number of OZ designated communities just through the end of 2020. Um, so that's only three years into the policy's life uh, and it already reached uh, investment had already reached about 3,800 communities across the country. Uh, so that is a, a, a scale that for just for some context, New Markets Tax Credit <laughs> reached approximately 4,300 census tracts in its 20 year lifespan. Uh, so in three three years, we've done about what NMTC took about 18 uh, for for that policy to accomplish. Obviously, very different structure here. So it's not entirely analogous, but I think it's helpful contextualization. Uh, the um, OZ communities that receive this investment are substantially more economically distressed than the rest of the country across every key indicator, poverty, median household income, and unemployment, for example. Um, the total equity investment uh, that uh, nationwide reached at least $48 billion by the end of 2020, and that's, again, not counting corresponding debt and non-equity, uh, non-OZ equity, rather. Um, and this capital was raised from roughly 21,000 individuals and, uh, and 7,800 uh, qualified opportunity funds. So um, pretty uh, remarkable scale. Uh, one last thing, since again, we're talking about impact here that I'll mention, is that uh, another study found that OZ designation caused a large and immediate increase on new and residential development activity, um, such that the likelihood of investment uh, in any given month jumped by over 20% in designated tracts. 
Um, what we're also, but what that study also found is that positive economic spillovers um, in neighboring communities happened and that this increased the supply of housing and improved home values, but it did not observe, uh, there's no observed increase in rents. So increase in development and activity, uh, you know, positive uh, economic spillover effects in other communities, no observable increase in rents um, with all of that activity happening at the same time. So with that, I will pause there and um, and turn it over to, to Rachel and Chris, who I know have some more specific examples of um, how funds and investors are actually capturing some of this impact too. Yeah, please, please do. Uh, th Catherine, thank you for setting the table there. That was that was incredible. Um, let's get a link to that new analysis from EIG in the chat. Uh, Catherine, if you can sure. post that, otherwise I can find it in a minute and post it. Uh, but feel free to post that in the chat right now if anybody wants to dive into that. Uh, Rachel, let's turn to you. Um, Catherine said that you and Chris were going to cover examples of how some funds are making an impact. Uh, do, do you have any examples for us, Rachel? Um, I have a ton of examples, but there was a comment that was dropped in the chat that may uh, kind of waylay how this conversation goes on my end. So, Jimmy, I hope you're ready for that. But no, the comment was social impact question mark, social impact being in quotation marks. Yes. And I think and if I were to read into that based on the conversations I've had about opportunity zones over the past years, I think what the attendee is asking is how do you define social impact? What are you calling social impact? Um, if I'm getting that wrong, please correct me. But I think it is a very fair question uh, because you know, there, when we talk about impact, we can have economic impact, we can have social impact. Uh, quite frankly, one of the things we always say is no matter what you do, you're having an impact. It's just, you know, what is your intentionality behind the type of impact that you want to have? Is it neutral? Is it negative? Is it positive on either a direct or indirect level? But all that to say, the way that I think about social impact is that you can directly tie your investment activity to positively improving someone's life. And I think that that can happen in a number of ways, right? You're investing in an asset that's providing affordable or workforce housing so that folks have a place to live affordably. You are investing in a um, in an operational site or a healthcare facility that uh, is providing direct services to patients. You Maybe it's through your tenants, right? So I know that a great project called MLK Gateway in Washington, D.C., they're not only doing local hiring and they're keeping track of the number of contractors that they're using vis-a-vis -vis their percentage of overall hiring. But one of their tenants is a Keller Williams real estate office, and they're offering uh, free real estate, real estate training to the local community. Um, so there are you know, job creation and retention. There are a number of ways to think about it other than just projections on tax revenue generated through your investment activities. So with that said, that is how I define social impact and all the examples that I just mentioned about potential benefits, we do know of projects that are hitting all of those marks. So um, I can go into those projects a little bit later, but I do wanna provide Chris an opportunity to weigh in. Yeah, well, I think that's, that's a great thing to point out, your definition of social impact, Rachel. And, and really, I think it's a values-based definition that may vary from investor to investor, from stakeholder to stakeholder. Uh, but I think your definition should resonate with with almost everybody in the audience today. Well, Chris, let's let's turn to you. What do you got for us? Um, any examples of how funds are, are making an impact or or take the conversation in any direction you want, Chris, I trust you. 
Well, first of all, thanks, uh, Jimmy, for having me. And and uh, I feel so honored and privileged to be in a pan- on a panel with these two incredible women. I mean, it's like, you know, when you and, and Ashley came and, and said, hey, can you help us build this community for co-working or, you know, this co-working community for Opportunity Zones? It was like, who am I? <laughs> but over the course of the last two and a half years, I mean, on a day-to-day basis, I'm sort of like hearing from people that are at boots on the ground doing this work. And so, I mean, my my examples are are more individual. Um, I I will say that, you know, we we launched an OZ Accelerator uh, 12 weeks ago almost, and we're nearing the end of that. And a lot of that was built on, you know, this desire to to, to define and, and have an impact uh, in opportunity zones and in the conversation. And, um, you know, I, I know that we had a little preliminary call, Catherine and, and Rachel and I, and, and uh, I mentioned, you know, the, the coming back to the root of the opportunities on incentive, which Catherine, I really appreciate you setting that, that bar uh, because in a lot of workshops and in a lot of conversations, I'm realizing and noticing that people come in uh, not really thinking about why this was started in the first place. And uh, when we introduce that and come back to basics, it really opens up a dialogue in these aha moments for investors and other stakeholders of like, geez, what does social impact mean to me, right? Like what, what impact am I having through my project? And, and it really becomes this, um, this conversation starter and it gets deeper into sort of the human spirit uh, in my experience. So one example, uh, and I know we did this advocacy event, all of us, uh, a few I got in, you know, months ago, right. Um, with this extension bill potentially on the table, um, and we had a, a couple of um, examples during that. One of them was this woman, her name is Sue Springsteen, and she, uh, you know, was a wealth, uh, in, you know, from a financial background and, and moved to a place in an opportunity zone called Coatesville, Pennsylvania. And this is a person who who literally with all uh, all adversity, right, everyone in her life saying, don't move there. Why would you move there? It's predominantly the opposite of demographic of who you are. Uh, it's a declining economy, like just a just a, a place that no one would want to be. And she went totally against that and decided to make a commitment and move to Coatesville and launch a company. She's raised money for a business in an opportunity zone. She's, you know, uh, done the, the, the uh, real estate development, uh, commercial property with office spaces, a tech center, helping the community. But the way that that happened is that she made a commitment and she literally moved her life into that space to be around and, and, and really have conversation and form a life with people who come from a completely different background, a totally different perspective than she does. And I just personally say that, you know, that's one of the things that I've found in, in opportunity zones that's really inspired me is it, 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 it help, has helped me get a, a lot out of my comfort zone um, and start to listen more. And, uh, and, and it's amazing what you can do if you really come at this from an impactful standpoint, thinking like, wow, what, what can I do to have a beneficial impact here? Right. Like Rachel said, you know, you can, you, you get a, you get to have a choice. Right. Am I going to have no impact? Am I going to have a negative impact? Am I going to have a positive impact? Um, and the positive direction uh, is fulfilling. It's gratifying. It it helps this uh, narrative. Um, and it I think it brings more people together. So uh, if I can just have like a rah-rah moment, that's that's me trying to do that. Well, we're having some rah-rah moments in the chat right now regarding Sue, at least uh, a lot. A lot of <laughs> Sue's a rock star. Sue, Brad said I have. Sue is aces, Coatesville rocks, and uh, our friend Emily says Sue is incredible. So uh, uh, Sue's reputation precedes her here, I guess. 
Yeah. I mean, she's really doing it. And I think, you know, also what comes to mind is this cliche, Rachel, as you were talking, like, you know, um, with great power comes great responsibility, something like that. Right. And I think that thinking about what you can do, um, I've talked with investors who were going to do projects and all of a sudden we talk about the root of the incentive and what it means. And it's like, oh, wait, I was just looking at this from a tax break, like how I can make a school and, and teach, you know, kids how to surf you know, and bring them together. Like that, that's a real example of an investor that I met in Puerto Rico. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's that human connection and, um, you know, yeah, this is, this is all about moving capital. And at the same time, like hearing what a community needs uh, is really, really a powerful thing that you can do. And, and that's where the, the, in my experience, the positive impact and change comes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I want to address a couple things in the chat real quick. And then we've got some questions as well. I think we're going to try to get to in, in a few minutes. Um, but in the chat right now, uh, Rachel did post a link to Hope Manor Village. And I also posted a link to the webinar that the four of us uh, on this panel right now did a year ago. We're back <laughs> for another one here today. Crazy. Um, you, guys can, you guys can check that out at your leisure. We also have um, uh, some links to some different reports, impact investing reports, and the study that EIG just released yesterday, very coincidentally, great timing with this event. Uh, so thank you, Catherine, and your team. I don't know if we planned on that, but it's uh, rather serendipitous. Um, the fact of the matter is, I think a lot of the investors who are here with us today are interested in opportunities on investing to help grow their wealth, to take advantage of the amazing tax benefits. Those tax benefits exist, though, to make some impact in these communities. Uh, Congress didn't pass this bill merely for the rich to get more rich and for the rich to acquire these tax breaks. Yes, the tax breaks are incredible. And yes, you can grow your wealth with opportunity zones. But I also like to say these this tax incentive helps grow wealth within opportunity zone communities. Um, Chris, you pointed out to me in your email yesterday and when we were preparing this, that there's two different types of investors, it seems. And it seems like mission-oriented investors have a sense for what it takes to support impact in low-income communities. But this Opportunity Zone incentive is bringing in this atypical investor, someone who's more after returns, bottom line returns, tax breaks, and it's bringing them into these communities and they may not be primed for some of the challenges and the needs of those communities. Uh, Chris, question for you, but I'll open it up um, to, to Catherine and Rachel as well. Anybody can feel free to chime in. What do you view as that solution to this potential mismatch? You know, I think it's really simple, Jimmy. Uh, I think it's getting out and talking to people in the community as different as they are, they're people too. And the more you get to know people personally and individually, the more trust that gets built, the more they're going to receive and accept your investment and support it and back it with like, you know, lawmakers, with their, their friends and family. Um, it, it just it, it really is a special thing to connect with people one on one and community leaders. And I, I that's my take on it. Um, you know, I, I use Sue as an example. I, I can talk to hundreds of people that I've met in our community that that are that do the same thing. And it, and it feels like this stretch, like I, I don't look like these, this person or I have a different socioeconomic background or different family unit, whatever that is. It, it's like 
it doesn't matter if you really truly want to make that impact happen, like go out of your comfort zone and, and make an introduction and meet people and talk to them. Right. Um, I also can't take credit for what you just said in my email because that was Rachel. <laughs> and so I'm going to kick it to Rachel because her experience is so deep with this in that mission driven uh, investor element, you know, traditionally versus seeing, you know, that sort of atypical version of an investor coming into these areas. So I'm going to, I'm going to pass the hot potato to her. Hot potato indeed, Chris. Uh, <laughs> um, um, no, so, so I'll touch on, on that a little bit and maybe the genesis of my comments yesterday with Chris and Catherine, but for me, I think it's always important to go back to making the business case of why you should care, because I don't necessarily think pleading an emotional case at the end of the day, maybe it will tug on the hearts and minds of folks, but it has to make financial sense too. And so when I think about opportunity zone investors who maybe are not necessarily uh, plugged in on the social impact side or aren't defining themselves as mission-related investors or mission-oriented investors, um, what I say to them is that by working with local partners, by working with a fund manager with local expertise, you're gonna get unique market insights into demand. And that is going to help inform the type of investments you make, hopefully, and as well as, you know, how well those investments do over time. If you're investing into something in a community that there's no demand for, but there's no way of knowing that because maybe you were just going through like a national list of, you know, we need more Chick-fil-A, we need more Chipotle, whatever. But what you don't see is that that community really needs a daycare center and that mm -hmm. community daycare center, the operator can actually get a contract from the federal government to run that operations for 15, 20 years. All of a sudden that is 15 or 20 years of guaranteed income for yes. your investment. And so that is why I always say work with the local community, understand what their needs and priorities are. Number one, that daycare is going to be oversubscribed if they need daycare in the first place. And number two, you have a government contract backing it. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, and, and you're serving a social, socially good mission. And so it's not necessarily like give up your return, uh, you know, immerse yourself in the community. Those are all good things, but it doesn't have to be that. If I could also add, uh, I totally agree. Um, I mentioned sort of going out of your comfort zone to meet people who maybe don't, you know, look like you or come from a different background as you. It goes the other direction too. And that's one of the reasons I, I see Juan, shout out to Juan uh, from our accelerator. Uh, one of the reasons that we put together the accelerator and we we carved out uh, sponsorships and scholarships for that is to be able to introduce language and education around this uh, type of investment to people who represent OZ communities. So of the 23 deals that are in our pipeline and in our, our, our program, um, more than half are people who represent OZ communities who normally wouldn't have had access. And we've got the investors in there giving feedback and, and, and uh, shout out to all the amazing uh, uh, teachers. Jimmy, you were one of them uh, for volunteering your time to, to be with these folks and, um, and introduce them to concepts that normally maybe wouldn't have been part of their vocabulary. Right. And so um, it's just, it's been amazing. And, and, and Rachel, yeah, I mean, the daycare is, is, is exactly it, right. If you just look on a, a list and you look at um, you know, just pick from a hat uh, it doesn't have the same type of impact that we're talking about here. 
Great. Well, I want to uh, get to the question. We got about eight, nine, 10 minutes left before we got to wrap it up. Uh, we've got a bunch of questions. I want to get to most of them in a minute. We got one quick one I think you can answer, Chris. What is Sue's full name? Yvette wants to know. Uh, Sue Springsteen. And then maybe we can, can we post uh, her link to her project or her profile yeah, chat here? I, I think I can dig up uh, a link to, we clipped out like just her segment of our last session about advocacy. Uh, I'll, I'll see if I can dig it up. on. Her Let's YouTube get that channel. in there. Hey, okay. uh, Catherine, I wanted to turn back to you. You're posting some interesting stuff in the chat here, some analysis about um, about your analysis. Uh, you mentioned in the chat that OZ investment reached all 50 states and in Oregon and Colorado, more than three fourths of their OZs reached investment. That's incredible. Um, Catherine, are there, are there any other high level uh, facts or tidbits you can share with us from the study that that are that are important to you? And and a broader question is, are OZs working? Yeah, I mean, so I think uh, I definitely encourage everyone to take a look at the analysis. There are some, I think, helpful charts that we've uh, included there that uh, visualize a lot of this data. Um, I know it's a it's a lengthy brief. So, uh, but the the map I think is a, um, it, you know in particular I think everyone likes to see sort of where their state that they're working in or that they're residing in has kind of ranked uh, in terms of uh, the percentage of OZs that have actually seen investment. Um, so we do have a map there that has uh, the percentages for every state, um, and this is again only through the end of 2020. Um, and we know just based on other private sector data sources like Novogratz. Um, that, you know, 2021 was a really big year for investing because of the expiration of the step up and basis benefit. And same with 2022, another really big year for investing. So it's probably safe to say that we have, you know, gone maybe even into the kind of two thirds range in terms of the percentage of national, uh, on the national scale, at least the percentage of those that have received, received investment. But um, I mentioned Oregon and Colorado because those are the two states that are really leading the pack. DC is actually number one with 80% not good a state. <laughs> so um, I picked out the states first uh, uh, to, to highlight. But um, yeah, so I think that there's some really interesting lessons that we can potentially learn here and glean for, you know, uh, you know, further down the road. Um, in terms of additional, you know, findings that I think are really important. I mean, I think the other the other thing to really note, um, and maybe I'll just kind of go back to the point I made earlier about the, the types of communities that are receiving investment um, are also ones that are just are highly distressed places. Um, and so in that way, you know, again, this is early evidence, right? This is only through the first three years of the program um, or the policy. And so we don't yet know the long-term effects of this, um, but the early signs are showing that it is actually, you know, it is on its way to fulfilling Congress's intent of, you know, getting capital uh, into communities that are highly distressed places. Um, that at least is bearing out in this kind of early evidence and early data. Um, you know, one thing I'll make a plug for the Opportunity Zones Transparency Extension and Improvement Act that we did, that was the focus of our, our advocacy webinar last year. Um, and that is the, the bill not only to extend the policy, but also to establish reporting and transparency requirements, part of which would be longitudinal in, in nature. So not only an annual report um, that would collect information from funds and investors, but also one that would, at the fifth and 10th year, take a look at how are these communities varying? Let's look at all the socioeconomic metrics that can help us understand better, you know, communities that were designated and their residents, how are they doing versus you know, communities that may have been eligible, but were not designated. So in a similar situation economically, but didn't get that OZ designation. Um, so I think that will be, you know, that's a really important part of the legislation and, and something that will be really, you know, really critical for us to better understand 
is this early evidence going to bear out, you know, through the the long the, the entire longevity of the policy? And that that'll be really important to the staying power um, of, of OZs generally. Perfect. Well, let's we've got five minutes left. Let's get to the questions because we've, we've got a bunch of questions. And apologies in advance if we don't get to everyone's question. I'll try to pass along questions to the appropriate person on this panel to try to answer if we don't get to yours. But uh, Kai asks, how can you quantify social impact and incorporate that value into the capital stack? Is that something that can be valued? Uh, does uh, quantified? Does, does that question even make sense? Who wants to get that one? Raise your hand or just jump in. Yeah, I can take part of that uh, and then opine on another part of it. But um, the first part concretely, we do know that there are methods for evaluating and quantifying the impact that projects have. Earlier in the uh, panel, I dropped a link to Arcteris Impact Investors 2022 report. Um, they do a really good job of analyzing the impact of their deals. They hired a firm called ICIC to do that. Uh, you don't have to hire a firm. I think really it's as easy as gathering you know, some metrics as well as some qualitative, so quantitative and qualitative information and qualitative information just being, as Chris mentioned, go talk to people, get, you know, better understand how they're benefiting from the project that you have. Um, the other link that I just dropped in there uh, is a link to EIG's resources. I've been working with EIG for years now to kind of elevate these high impact models uh, through both webinars, but also uh, deal profiles. And so if you wanted to take a look how some of this is being quantified, um, that's a good resource. And the last plug that I'll say uh, is that working locally sometimes means with working with local consortiums. And I do wanna plug the Chicago Opportunity Zone Consortium who helped with uh, the Hope Manor Village uh, profile that I dropped earlier. Having an intermediary like that on the ground can be really helpful with investors. So if folks are interested in working with an intermediary free of charge, happy to put you in touch with uh, Chicagoland Opportunity Zone Consortium. Uh, great. Well, thank you for those examples, Rachel. Um, Rhonda asks, how have Opportunity Zones impacted the equitable value of the local disenfranchised developers and is there any positive impactful traction seen with those individual development firms as well? Who wants to take that one? Any, any thoughts there? Yeah, I think maybe what you're referring to is minority-owned development firms. Um, so who are the project sponsors? Who's actually generating wealth by developing and owning these properties? And I will say that there are a number of minority-owned development firms, Mosaic in Philadelphia, which um, actually ran a equity crowdfunding campaign for local residents alongside their OZ projects, as well as Minketti in Washington, DC, who developed that uh, MLK Gateway project that I mentioned earlier. And so I'm not necessarily sure if OZs has spurred additional activity for those developers, but I do know that it's put a spotlight on the communities in which they're operating which means more development opportunities for them uh, now and in the future. Great. Uh, this next question, uh, Chris, you might be primed to answer it. Robin asks, can you speak to how Opportunity Zone funds can be used to purchase businesses located in the Opportunity Zone? And do you work with, with any of, uh, any, anyone in, involved in those types of transactions, Chris? Well, uh, I guess not specifically. Um, I, I mean, I would say that 
part of our accelerator is is teed up to help uh, businesses develop to receive uh, OZ capital from qualified opportunities and funds. So, um, you know, part of that is educating the the businesses on what that actually means, right? Uh, and then they can go educate what we're finding is they're actually going out and educating their investors. And oftentimes what I'm realizing is that the investor in this sense, right, actually needs the business a little more than the other way around because you've got a timeline to deploy some of this capital and find a real good deal. Um, and so, you know, obviously a lot of the investment's been made in real estate, but uh, I, I don't know if I can specifically answer that question, uh, but I do want to make note um, based on the last two, uh, people may want to check out the Rice Center in Atlanta. Um, it's like an incubator for for Black-owned businesses and it's run by uh, by a group of uh, philanthropists and uh, and investors, and um, it's in an opportunity zone. I don't know how much they're diving into it, but that's a, a great example. Um, and the other thing is quantifying social impact. I just want to give a shout out. Uh, I know that there is a social impact um, uh, report that's coming out. I believe uh, JTC that will be announcing that shortly. Um, but it'll be really cool to see that data quantified. Uh, and also, what I would say is, like Rachel mentioned, document everything. I know, I don't know if it, Jimmy has actually been on yet today. I think he's on a little bit later. To he's on questions. a little bit later this afternoon. Yeah. yeah like his whole thing is like, can you uh, genuinely back up that everything that you've done has made an impact? Right. And if you're telling your story to Rachel's point, it doesn't all have to be quantitative. It can be qualitative as well, but can all roads point back to, I really genuinely made this business decision based on a positive impact. Right. That, um, so I kind of went off track there. My apologies, but I want no, to. That's perfect. And, uh, and wrap could, up our. Could... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Kat. I was just going to say, if I could follow Chris's tangent. Seconds. Okay. I'll follow Chris's tangent for just a second. <laughs> Thank you. you. Know, in, addition to, <laughs> um, in addition to, uh, you know, sharing or kind of trying to do, do your best to tracking your impacts from a, either a quantitative or qualitative sense, also share that, you know, with your state and local and federal policymakers as well. Um, that is really important. I mean, uh, kind of absent the, the legislation, and obviously we're working really hard to get that passed and sort of uh, codify the, the reporting and the transparency requirements. But, you know, absent that for now, it's still... It's really important for uh, you all to do what you can uh, to try to measure the impact and understand what that and what the impact you is that you're having on these communities, and then tell that story as well. So that's the next step, um, and that's something that the advocacy toolkit that um, that we talked about last year um, can come into play, and that's where we can help be a resource as well if you are interested in doing that. But that will be very very important, just again for the kind of overall longevity of the policy and um, and you know uh, reinforcing that positive narrative as well. Perfect. Well. We've run out of time. <laughs> we could probably talk about this stuff all day, but really yes, want to thank Rachel and Catherine. And, and I want to echo one thing that Chris mentioned about 15 minutes ago. It's an honor to serve on the panel. Um, maybe not so much with you, Chris, but with the two ladies, for sure. I've been... I knew that was coming, Jimmy. It's okay. <laughs> well, I've been... I, I started learning about Opportunity Zones in mid-2018, and I devoured a ton of content that uh, Rachel was putting out at that time. And she was very active on Twitter and and Catherine, you as well, and, and your group at EIG, just incredible resources for me in those early days in 2018. And it's, it's, it's great to be serving on this panel with both of you. And Chris, it's great to serve on this panel with you as well. So thank you to all of you for participating. Um, I did post links to Osworks Group, to EIG, and to Aces and Archers in the chat. So please do check out our organiza the organizations from our panelists today. Thank you all so much for participating. Really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thanks, Jimmy. Thank you both. Thank you.
That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.